What time is it? What time is it? Time is it? Time is it? Time is it? I'm your host, Terry Thompson. You know, Mark Twain once said, Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody ever seems to do anything about it. Well, I don't know about that, because you see, about the time he said that, uh, out in the West, and in certain other areas, uh, they were embarking on a new science. And I'm talking about the science surrounding a very scarce commodity, especially in the American West and Southwest. Yeah, H2O, water. I'm talking about the science of rainmaking. In the United States, rainmaking was attempted by traveling showmen. It was practiced on the American frontier, but may have reached a peak during the Dust Bowl drought of the U.S. West and Midwest in the 1930s. The practice was depicted in the 1956 film, The Rainmaker. Hey, I saw it. It's cool. How would you do it, Stop? Now, now, don't ask me no questions. Why, it's a fair question. How will you do it? You care how I do it, sister, as long as it's done. And I'll tell you how I do it. I'll lift the stick and take a long swipe at the sky. I'll let down a shower of hailstones as big as cantaloupes. I'll shout out some good old Nebraska cuss words. And you turn around and there's a lake where you could have used Or I'll sing a little tune, maybe. It'll sound so pretty and sound so sad. And your old mantle. The sky will get all misty like. Shed the prettiest tears you ever did see. Being a native Texan, I'm always in search for that Texas connection to just about any topic I get on. And of course, with when it comes to the subject of rain and Texas. Uh, Sometimes it's a tumultuous relationship, to say the least. In one hard-hit area of Texas, some people have grown tired of waiting for Mother Nature to bring relief and have decided to try and take matters into their own hands. Here's ABC's Juju Chang. Craig Funky is flying me to the edge of a violent thunderstorm. You see how nice and crisp the top of that cloud is up there? Yeah. But the former commercial pilot isn't some adrenaline junkie courting danger. He's a cloud seeder chasing this menacing storm to squeeze out extra rain for the drought-stricken farmland below. As a pilot going through school, you're taught to avoid thunderstorms. This is Craig's job, firing chemicals into the clouds in a controversial attempt to modify the weather. He's literally a rainmaker. That dark, thick cloud over there has lots of moisture in it. That's part of the cloud that was seeded. 
It actually looks heavy with rain. Cloud seeding has been used around the world for decades, but it's now getting a closer look as farmers desperate for solutions endure their fourth month of record-shattering drought with no end in sight. It's actually the largest drought in half a century, responsible for rising food prices and record wildfires. It's even suspected to be a cause for the recent surge in cases of West Nile virus. So we came to South Texas to find out if cloud seeding can really maximize our most precious resource, or if it's just a romantic notion that doesn't hold water. We can't manufacture a cloud. That is just absolute basic. We, we cannot make it rain if it was not going to rain to begin with. Tommy Shearer is president of the Texas Weather Modification Association. He's quick to explain that he can only enhance the weather, not create it. If you look at the cloud as a factory, we're inducing a lot of raw material into the factory so that the factory becomes more efficient. And more productive. Consequently more productive. His team of pilots and meteorologists are constantly scanning the skies for the right clouds to see. Where everybody's going to get some good rain. After 10 bone-dry days, a promising cluster of thunderstorms is finally headed their way. Butch is today's standby pilot. He takes the first run. Up in the air, we get a bird's eye view of Butch's delicate dance. He's just working the very edge of it. And then Butch finds the cloud sweet spot. Okay, he's fixing a light of flare. Okay. Oh, I see the flare. Yeah. It looks like he's uh, painting the sky. The flares are shooting millions of silver iodide and calcium chloride particles into the cloud, where they collide with drops of water and ice and produce even more moisture. Then, usually within 20 minutes... So what is this white, smoky stuff over here? That's rain. Oh, that's rain? Yeah, that's rain. <laughs> All this is rain out here. You go out and you see for a few hours or all day long and really know you did some good. It's a good feeling. The radar data collected today adds to a growing body of evidence that cloud seeding works. It can double the amount of moisture in a given cloud, and the Texas programs boast a 12% increase in annual rainfall, thanks to seeding. And long-term studies show those chemicals are environmentally safe and can't even be detected in the rainfall. But despite all the data, some of cloud seeding's biggest critics are surprisingly the very farmers who stand to benefit most. This isn't the first drought we've been through, and it won't be the last. Bill Slumchinski's family has been farming this land for five generations. He and his son Brett tell us it's expensive to irrigate 300 acres of crops. All that watering cuts deeply into profits, but they are skeptical that anything short of divine intervention can actually make more rain. What do you make of the cloud seeding program? Well, when you've been in a drought since 96 and we've had one wet year, is it working? We can't stop droughts, we can't break droughts. Uh, we just try and put a little more water on the ground. And every drop of water, Craig explains, helps feed the underground aquifer used to irrigate crops. So though he can't promise Bill and Brett more rainy days, he's convinced cloud seeding is helping them in the long run. The local water districts that manage the aquifers believes it's working too. They pay four cents an acre to keep Craig and his team up and running. But we want people to understand we're not making promises we can't keep and we're not making claims that we do not do. Tommy Shearer brushes off critics who say he's playing God. 
His ideas may be bold, but he says he never loses sight of who's really in charge. You're not going to beat Mother Nature. Let's just understand that right off. We work with Mother Nature. We try to help Mother Nature. Pick your battles. I wouldn't even fight my own mother. Every piece of this is man's bullshit. But they made the weather and then they stand in the rain and say, Shit, it's raining! This is the shuttle's fuel tank. It may only be 130 miles to space, but to cover that distance, the engines will use half a million gallons of fuel. And that works out at two feet to the gallon. Despite the cost, however, NASA does need to test these engines once in a while. So they built this place in the wetlands of Mississippi. The first thing they installed was a huge loudspeaker, through which they played white noise to simulate the sound of a rocket. They then sent a number of trucks in different directions out into the wilderness, and the drivers were ordered to stop when the noise levels became acceptable. This gave them an imaginary boundary line, and anyone living on the inside of it was offered a simple choice. Stay, and you'll never hear another television program as long as you live. Or take the NASA shilling and get out. No one stayed, and NASA ended up with exactly what it wanted. 125,000 acres of nothing. They even had to move five cemeteries because the noise they were planning on making would wake the dead. Uh, don't worry if you can't hear what I'm saying. Um, I couldn't even hear myself. This is the loudest sound you could possibly conceive. And, as it turns out, the cleanest. Now, the most amazing thing is that that cloud up there, which was generated by the engine, is just a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen. It's water vapor. And in about an hour's time, someone in Mississippi is going to get wet washing. It will actually rain. I told you, it's raining. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Oh. NASA's playing God. It's making its own weather. That was the sound of yesterday's successful test firing of the SpaceX Booster 7 at the Boca Chica SpaceX facility, well, near me uh, here in South Texas. With the potential of that kind of event creating rainfall and their ambitious schedule of, for, I, I heard last time, three launches a day when they get going, 
I might want to uh, invest in a nice umbrella. If they get overly ambitious, however, uh, maybe a good kayak. After all, I have to have some way to get to the beer store. Uh, yeah. Operation Sober Popeye was a military cloud seeding project carried out by the U.S. Air Force during the Vietnam War between 1967 and 1972. The highly classified program attempted to extend the monsoon season over specific areas of the Ho Chi Minh Trail in order to disrupt North Vietnamese military supplies by softening road surfaces and causing landslides. One day, it started raining, and it didn't quit for four months. We've been through every kind of rain there is. Little bit of stinging rain, and big old fat rain. Rain that flew in sideways, and sometimes rain even seemed to come straight up from underneath. Shoot, it even rained at night. In recent decades, the warming in the Arctic has been much faster than in the rest of the world, a phenomenon known as the Arctic amplification. Numerous studies report that the Arctic is warming either twice, more than twice, or even three times as fast as the globe on average. Polar amplification is the phenomena that any change in the net radiation balance tends to produce a larger change in temperature near the poles than in the planetary average. This is commonly referred to as the ratio of polar warming to tropical warming. Recently to combat polar warming, uh, there's been some ideas kicked around of uh, releasing sulfur dioxide in the upper atmosphere to help cool the poles. Hmm. What do you think of that, Professor? Sulfur dioxide to reverse global warming, yes and no. Yes, because the sulfur dioxide in the form of aerosols would float around in the atmosphere and would reflect some of the incoming heat from the sun, thus reversing some of the global warming. And no, because sulfur dioxide plus water gives you sulfuric acid acid rain. We killed fish in lakes thousands of kilometers away from the sources of the sulfur dioxide back in the 80s. In this case, it would work, but the cure would be worse than the disease. Well, thanks for that appraisal, but I don't think everybody's getting the message. All right, so let's talk about it with Dr. Emmanuel DiLorenzo, professor and director of a new program in ocean science and engineering at Georgia Tech. Thanks for being with us uh, this morning. Let's start off with what was in the article. According to it, scientists are investigating whether releasing a chemical compound into the air will slow Earth's warming. Is that even possible? Theoretically, it's very possible. In fact, uh, I think it's very sound science. Uh, and from a science perspective, I think it's a very interesting uh, kind of geoengineering approach. Mm -hmm. But if we consider the human factor, uh, this type of approach uh, feels to me like taking a climate pill. And let me explain what I mean by that. Imagine you're a patient and you go to your doctor for high cholesterol. Yeah. And the doctor gives you two options. The first option is change your lifestyle, maybe reduce your calorie, exercise, and try to reduce your cholesterol and, and be healthier. The other approach is take the antistatin, the anti-cholesterol drug. 
And, you know, most people would say, yes, you know, changing your lifestyle is a good thing to do. But then at the end of the day, most people will actually take the pill. Right. And so I suspect that in this case of the climate analogy, most governments will end up rather taking the climate pill than doing the hard work yeah. of low growth. All right. So then the question becomes, does taking the pill produce worse side effects than we were originally started with? Well, here's the thing. Taking this pill could be dangerous. And, and the reason for that is the following. Suppose that you have on one side a very powerful force, which is a greenhouse that is acting to really increase the temperature of the planet. And now what you want to do is we want to develop this technology, which is an anti-force of equal powerful trying to counteract you know, this effect. So now you have a very highly nonlinear system, climate Earth, okay, and you have these two powerful effects interacting. Mm -hmm. While it seems logical that you could find a balance, in reality, finding that balance is very difficult. And in a nonlinear system, you can have runaway effects and so forth. So maybe a better approach would be to say, if you have this very powerful force, let's do other type of geoengineering that try to reduce maybe the mm. maximum of this force, right, so carbon capturing or things like okay, that. Okay, so has there been any testing on this theory, or is there any way even to test it? I think that uh, in the New York Times articles, uh, the, the scientists at Harvard were trying to uh, put in place an experiment uh, somewhere, I don't remember in which region, yeah. to actually try to release some of these chemical compounds and measure all these radiative balances that, that take place. But I, I was going to say, how do you test this? Because you have such a mm -hmm. large patient, if you will. I, so, I don't right. know if a, a, if a regional test of this, uh, of this kind of release of compounds would scale to a global effect. Mm -hmm. And then there's all the issues of, of time scales. Like, yeah. you know, some of the responses of climate Earth are delayed. Right, that's so true. So imagine like you have a knob in your shower, in an old shower, and you're turning the knob towards the hot water and it's not it's coming. freezing, so, so we, all, it we all know that, Dr. And then all of a sudden it becomes so hot and yeah. you're like, oh my gosh, it's so hot, and you turn it down so quick and then it gets hard yeah. to actually balance that. that, that these All right, Dr. Forces. Lorenzo, we certainly appreciate you coming on. And the question is, can we outsmart Mother Nature? It's a big she there. always seems to, you know, react. It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. <laughs>
Weather modification means, quote, any activity performed with the intention of producing artificial changes in the composition, behavior, or dynamics of the atmosphere, unquote. And as of April this year, there are more than 150 different weather modification programs around the world. Since about 2000, the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy have been spraying the entire United States sky with the toxic brew of chemicals and other biologic agents. We have two different kinds of trails in the sky right now. One are called contrails. How many of you know what contrails are? Contrails are what have been around uh, from uh, the um, ends of planes since World War II. These are very, very short exhaust trails that usually evaporate within a few minutes. You just look up at the sky and you'll just see a jet sometimes with four trails, but it evaporates pretty quickly. The military and some commercial planes are spraying us with what are called chemtrails. I want you to look at the, and oftentimes before there's a weather front, uh, there are heavy assaults uh, from these planes just before a weather front has changed and comes in. Military and some commercial jets have been fitted with huge barrels of at least 49 different kinds of documented chemical poisons. Among other documented ingredients in this toxic man-made clouds are, patho are pathogenic molds, fungi, weaponized viruses and made in some places like uh, the secret site at Fort Detrick, Maryland, which is supposed to be a cancer site. But there are a number of scholars and professors tracking this that have big questions about this. Barium and nanoalumin particles. What do these do to the human body? Barium is an alkaline earth mineral. It was discovered in 1774. At low doses, it can act as a muscle stimulant. At high doses, it detrimentally affects the heart and the nervous system. Barium is toxic to all mammals, and that means not just humans. Aluminum, which is the most abundant metal in the earth's crust, is known to diminish kidney function and destroy brain cells and cognitive function. Just think about it, just between the aluminum and the mercury that we're breathing all the time, we've got already a serious issue about uh, brain function and cognitive function. There is also documented evidence that the aluminum in chemtrails is released as nanoparticles and that when they reach the earth environment for wildlife in lakes and streams, it's causing serious uh, problems with wildlife there. Researchers are also finding that nanoparticles interfere with the growth of plants. Nanotechnology is totally unre unregulated. Just this past uh, month, a uh, new research report uh, came out uh, showing and documenting for the first time that these nanoparticles actually go through the skin. We're not in a rush to be most popular. Not in a rush not to be. 
it's for you, you'll know. Ah, thank you, wild turkey. It'll find you. There are two and a half million breast cancer survivors in the U.S. today. I'm a survivor. Maintaining a healthy weight, regular exercise, and limiting alcohol intake can lower the risk of developing breast cancer. I'm a survivor. I'm a survivor. Hi, I'm Congressman Bill Johnson. Early detection is a key to breast cancer survival. If you are 40 or older, talk with your doctor about scheduling a mammogram today. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Today, the Us 1.0 podcast. We really like to hear from our listeners. Email or voicemail. Also, check out our Facebook page. Surf's up. Got a boogie. The weather is here. I wish you were beautiful. My thoughts aren't too clear. But don't run away. My girlfriends are bored. My job is too beautiful. Hell, nobody's perfect. Would you like to play? It seems there are less toxic ways to do cloud seeding, and they've been doing it in the uh, country of Dubai for quite a while. Yes, this has been going on for decades, by the way. This is not something that's brand new. Um, But traditionally, what cloud seeding is, it involves using aircraft or drones or even some cannons to push silver iodide up high into the clouds. Why silver iodide? Because what that that has the same crystallized structure as ice. So once it gets up into the clouds, it starts to accumulate ice on it and these large raindrops, which helps, especially in a, you know, a cloud mass that's not really going to rain. It helps to bring rain and especially snow down. So it works. It does work marginally. But the problem with silver iodide through the years has been this, is that they they feel it could be harmful to aquatic life. Okay. Okay. So over in Dubai, which is what you're seeing here, they took it a different step. And what they basically did, they had a fleet of drones that flew up into cloud cover and they, they use electrical charges to force water droplets to combine into larger ones. So not silver, not cloud no, seeding as we no, know. No, no, right. they're not using the traditional silver iodide, which takes out the environmental right. aspect of that, okay? So they're using just electricity to create larger raindrops. Why larger raindrops? Because in Dubai, they only average about four inches of rain per year as most of the rain that falls out of the clouds evaporates because it's so hot, it's so dry, and the water molecules are so tiny. So they're trying to stimulate by using electricity these droplets to be larger. Hence, they can make it to the ground. Now, I will tell you that the jury is still kind of out a bit on whether or not this was a fluke, whether this is something that can work long term. So they need to continue with these drones and they're going to continue to do this. Yes, Mr. Rhodes. So assuming it works and it Mm -hmm. wasn't a fluke, Mm -hmm. why not use this out in the western U.S. where all these wildfires are and the drought is going on? Could this not help us 
That's here. A fantastic question. And they've been trying. Uh, and it, this is stuff that, first of all, it's very expensive too. Uh, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars, which is fine when you're trying to alleviate a drought. Sure. It cannot work with wildfires. Here's the thing. You can't just throw silver iodide or electricity into a clear sky and it rains. It doesn't work that way. You have to have the right cloud structure, the right cloud height. They have to be tall, getting up well into the freezing layers. Then you can try to stimulate that process. And they've done that out west. During the winter time when they get days and days of cloud cover, mm -hmm. they've done that and they've noticed they've been able to increase the snowfall pack five to 15%. Okay. But the area and the weather, Russell, around wildfires is not conducive to that type of cloud cover, so you can't do it. In other words, we need to treat the drought, which will then alleviate the wildfires. Got Does it. that make sense? Yes. As far as cloud seeding techniques go, it seems as though some are willing to, uh, well, they aim to shoot for the sky. What if you could fire a laser at the sky and make it rain? Oh, that sounds more interesting. Dave Malkoff explains. Just another stormy, wet afternoon in central Florida. But what if you could pick up all this rain and move it where it's needed? Texas or California? What if a laser could start the rain. So you can almost use it to set it off. Matt Mills got into lasers as a kid. It's just innately cool. Now he's part of a team of scientists and military backers on the cutting edge of a new technology, making lasers powerful enough to reach up here into the sky where a thunderstorm is just about to start. In the near future, a push-button storm starter could be a real thing. Just imagining this situation, if there was a rain cloud that was gonna pass over an area of drought and not rain, you could, you know, theoretically induce the rain and get the rain where it's needed. That storm starter isn't the laser beam itself, but rather a popping energy that comes off of much higher power beams than this one. The problem is those pops have always had trouble getting into the sky. Now Matt has discovered a way to get the laser to pop all the way in the clouds. In theory, that's what starts a storm. We created a cloud of our own behind Matt's lab. A few months ago, Matt's colleagues in Arizona got this working experimentally. The next step is to get it to work in the sky. The particles in the air are rubbing together, forming static electricity, and the conditions are now right. And they just need to be triggered now. Does this concern you that you may be messing with mother nature and doing something that you don't completely understand up here in the cloud? I, I, I mean, I suppose that's always a danger, but we're not even near to the case where it could be dangerous yet, so not too much. It's almost like an on-off switch for a thunderstorm. That's the idea behind it. Right here in the cloud. Yep. In Orlando, Dave Malkoff, The Weather Channel. Absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And it could change a lot of things, uh, like these areas of drought that we're watching in the West. in most things when science comes across with a new innovation it's not long before the military comes around you know it people always say well uh, if just as long as it doesn't fall into the wrong hands well what if it's in the wrong hands now come on it's like a, 
a Bond supervillain in the making. That kind of scenario. A man with an umbrella is a man praying for rain. And a man without one is a fool. Never trust the weather, Sir August. Rain or shine, all is might. Four phases locked and ready to fire, sir. Fire phases. <laughs> Bloomfield, Michigan, 1942. As World War II rages across several continents, acclaimed architect and eventual designer of the St. Louis Arch, Aero Saarinen, is secretly enlisted by the United States military to work for a new clandestine organization. Its name? The OSS, Office of Strategic Services, or as it is known today, the CIA. The fact that Aero Saarinen was in the OSS designing weapon systems during World War II and at a time when the OSS was looking into ways to weaponize weather makes his whole connection to the design of the St. Louis Arch extremely interesting. Now, that isn't to say I believe it can control the weather, but it does open the door to the idea that it might have been one of the things Saarinen was out to achieve. While at the OSS, Saarinen designed buildings and weapon systems, many of which were never completed or built. Is it possible he later used these secret plans to engineer the St. Louis Arch, creating something that can actually control or perhaps harness the weather? Controlling the weather is the ultimate super weapon. It's even more powerful than the atomic bomb. So if Eero Saarinen was involved in analyzing and studying the possibility of weather modification, and you put all those factors together, and I think you have a guy that basically conducted a big, giant weather modification experiment with the St. Louis Arch. Weather as a weapon? There are some who think the idea is not as preposterous as it seems, especially when considering that even today, Many world governments are pouring millions of dollars into research designed to manipulate weather. I think weather modification has definitely been an ongoing endeavor of governments all over the world for decades. St. Louis Arch appears to be an experiment in weather modification. The HARP device appears to be an experiment in weather modification. Who knows what the Russians or the Chinese are doing? There's some sort of technology out there. There's been lots of work in the field of weather control. Using silver iodide inside of thunderstorms to decrease the size of hail. That goes on in many parts of the world to alleviate that problem. They're always firing rockets into the atmosphere in China to manipulate the weather. But is this a good idea? You wonder if you could steer a tornado, what would it take? Even a nuclear weapon might just nudge it, if even that. One challenge with that is your shockwave is going to be hard to focus, perhaps, and it might cause the damage you were hoping to avoid with the tornado. I would be looking at how much can I control or change local pressures in the atmosphere near and around the tornado. These are forces at work that could wipe out major cities. And we're finding out every day new things that we've never seen before. So maybe the lesson learned here is we shouldn't meddle with forces that we don't really understand because we may not like the result.
weather. At its best, it can cleanse and renew, but at its most extreme, it can destroy everything. I guess it should make one stop and think the next time they're caught out in the rain or a thunderstorm just what they're caught out in. There seems to be a lot of activity, however, these days in our upper atmosphere uh, pertaining to the weather. Perhaps that's what that Chinese balloon that just crossed over the USA might have been uh, doing. I don't know. Bears looking into. I try to remain optimistic, but I've got to remember this species involved in uh, tinkering with the weather and given the track record of the past I think I'll be smart enough to uh, come in out of the rain that's going to do it for this episode till next time remember what one raindrop said to the other two's company three's a cloud I got to put in a dad joke see ya